Welcome to Valina's talk on US-China nuclear relations. My guest today is David Santoro, who is president of the Pacific Forum. He specializes in strategic deterrence, arms control, and non-proliferation. David's current interests focus on great power dynamics and US alliances, particularly the role of China in an era of nuclear multipolarity. His new volume, US-China Nuclear Relations, The Impact of Strategic Triangles, was published in May 2021. This podcast is um, facilitated by Bharatvata, one of India's leading podcaster, podcast producers for politics, policy, and society. David, welcome to this digital conversation. Thank you so much, Velina. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be here and looking forward to our talk. Now, as you can imagine, before we actually elaborate on the US and China nuclear relations, we need to take a look at the current uh, picture on the old continent, where um, two other nuclear, old actually nuclear adversaries are more or less engaged in a kind of a, a very uh, serious uh, confrontation. Uh, the one being the full-scale war launched uh, by Russia on Ukraine on February 24th. And uh, of course, Ukraine uh, is um, actually uh, in a situation of war uh, or has been in a situation of war uh, since 2014. And due to uh, the uh, support coming from the West, uh, the United States, but also the European allies. Uh, Ukraine has been showing very strong resistance and uh, in reality uh, the Russian troops uh, have withdrawn from the north of uh, the country. Uh, officially since yesterday this has been confirmed. Now the war is entering a second phase and I would like to touch uh, upon this topic with you, what is your uh, assessment, of course, from the perspective of the US uh, strategic interests? How do you anticipate the development of this um, war and what does it mean for the United States and also for uh, the relations between the United States and the European allies, uh, given also uh, the possibility or the risk of the use of uh, nuclear weapons. So let's start with first your assessment, then of course, anticipation for the future development, and then uh, your um, also your opinion on the, the future of uh, the partnership. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I think um, for starters, um, what it means is that the United States um, will continue, will continue, will have to continue to uh, value uh, its relationship with, with Europe, uh, despite the fact that Asia is, quote unquote, the priority theater, despite the fact that China is the, again, quote unquote, the pacing threat, um, the United States will have to remain focused on, on, on Europe. Uh, and I'm not saying that to say that it was not going to be focused on Europe, but 
for years now, we've been talking about the so-called pivot or rebalance or shift to Asia. And it's been very difficult from a US standpoint to actually make that, that pivot to Asia. And um, you know, at the, I guess, broader strategic level, what it means, what, what the, this, this conflict in Ukraine means is that um, the United States will have to think long and hard about how it can focus on Asia while having still a very uh, you know, strong relationship with Europe and responding to a very immediate and urgent problem. Um, that's, I guess, the backdrop of what it means for US policy. Uh, as far as the, the, the war itself is concerned, um, well, I think clearly the war is not over. Uh, I think it's um, very clear also that um, uh, Vladimir Putin has had very serious setbacks uh, in, in its campaign. I think he decided to go for the full country instead of going to uh, going for, um, you know, I guess, more limited objectives uh, in the east of Ukraine, which, you know, were bad enough. But going for the full country was too ambitious. And now he's having setbacks. That does not mean that the war is over. And in fact, it, it could mean uh, an acceleration of the war and an acceleration of um, you know, indiscriminate uh, killing of civilians. And we've already seen a lot of that. Uh, and we've also seen that Russia is mob mobilizing um, a, a number of people uh, to continue the, the fight. And so, my assessment is quite bleak. I think we unfortunately will see uh, more killings and more destruction. And right now, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see an end in sight uh, for, for that conflict. Um, the other thing as well is I'm, I'm not sure that we are, we in the West, in the US um, are um, able to articulate specifically what it is that we want. We know that we don't want Putin to win, uh, but if, at the same time, when you hear uh, we can't let Putin win, you also hear, but we also know that um, he's not going to accept defeat. And so it makes it very, very difficult to, to reconcile those two realities. And so, again, I think at this point, um, it's, it's very difficult to see an end uh, of that conflict. And so um, maybe, you know, we, we are in a, in a, in a very tough, a tough spot that, um, you know, right now there's no end in sight. So that's, you know, for now, my assessment. Um, and the other thing that's, I guess, frustrating for me is that the discussion in the West is on the one hand, on, on the one hand, you have people who argue for more military assistance to, to Ukraine, more uh, support, um, basically more, um, you know, uh, I, I hate the word escalation, but basically more support for Ukraine. And then on the other hand, you have people who talk about off-ramps to Putin, uh, de-escalation. And so the, the, we, we, we have a very polarized view of, of that conflict. It's either you escalate or you don't, don't, uh, you don't escalate. And so, again, in terms of articulating specific goals, uh, it's, it's been a little difficult. But, you know, I don't think anyone has a very clear answer about where we go from here. Uh, I would argue that militarily, uh, you know, 
things can get very serious. Um, and, and that doesn't mean we should do any, we, we shouldn't do anything. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm personally think that we should absolutely ramp up military assistance to Ukraine in the current situation. But we also have to be very aware of the risks that, that are involved. Um, so, you know, this is unfortunately where we are. Do you anticipate, because this was also uh, being discussed uh, right from the beginning of the war, the possibility of use of the use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons? Do you anticipate uh, such a scenario in which Russia would see itself uh, in uh, the position or would see itself inclined to use uh, nuclear weapons um, against Ukraine? So I, I still consider that that risk is fairly low, uh, mm-hmm. just because it would be, um, as, as you know, and as m- you know, many people know, um, it would be a huge red line to cross. Uh, you know, any type of nuclear use, tactical or not, would be crossing a, you know, a big, big red line. And so I, I, I think it's still low, but I do not exclude that possibility. I think that um, you know, if if uh, I mean, I can I can conceive of, of some scenarios in which, if pushed into a corner, um, tactical the, the tactical use of nuclear weapons could make sense from Russia's perspective. That's one option. The other option would be uh, to you know for Russia to use nuclear weapons to basically force um, or change the dynamic and force. Ukraine and others to back down as a demonstration of force. That's another scenario. The other one as well that uh, we are not talking probably enough is the risk of escalation, inadvertent escalation, nuclear escalation, uh, where you, you know, basically we, we get into some form of an altercation at the conventional level that you know, very quickly leads to, to the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, again, I say that not to suggest that we should not continue our military assistance to Ukraine. Again, I want to stress that. I think that we should continue doing what we're doing and in fact, run that up. But I'm a little, sometimes a little concerned that um, we seem to dismiss too quickly the risk of of nuclear use. Um, And I think it's significant that when um, Vladimir Putin uh, started its campaign and announced its, 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 his, his campaign, he very quickly and very, to me, very explicitly stressed that Russia is a major nuclear armed state uh, and that it should not be messed with. I think, I think this was his, his terms. Now, that doesn't mean we should, we should not do anything. Again, I want to stress that you know, very much, but the reality is that Russia has multiple options. And so this is not a risk we should, we should ignore. Uh, so low risk, um, but not an impossible risk. And I think the, the, you know, the, the lesson for us is that we can do a lot to help Ukraine, but there are also hard limits to how much, um, you know, how much we can help because we are sort of, a, we, we, we want to help so long as there is no escalation, certainly not to the nuclear level. And so our willingness to help is limited by that factor. And so every time we deal with uh, uh, certainly a major nuclear armed states, 
we are de facto limited in our ability to respond or to provide assistance to a state so that that state can respond to, to, to aggression. Mm -hmm. Also, if you look uh, back at the nuclear relations between uh, United States and Russia uh, before uh, the full-scale war on Ukraine was launched, uh, it was a quite kind of a precarious situation already. I mean, the New START treaty between the US and Russia was seen as this last surviving pillar of nuclear uh, arms control. And obviously, even though that they managed to, uh, to agree on, uh, on a kind of um, um, prolongation of uh, the uh, new start until 2026 and to you know start at some point of time discussing um, and addressing uh, the, the, the topics and uh, conflictual issues um, also about the kind of weapons uh, that this future treaty should and could uh, entail. Uh, obviously the even bigger uh, target uh, for the United States was actually to uh, use uh, Russia as an, a negotiation party to also uh, bring China uh, to the negotiation table, which obviously did not succeed, but it was kind of a already precarious period uh, for the bilateral relations between America and Russia. And I would like to hear your opinion and also your assessment on their nuclear relations, specifically given the new uh, developments, how do you anticipate that they will uh, actually shape and facilitate this uh, relationship? Um, uh, what is also um, your um, well expectation uh, for the future of this last surviving pillar of the nuclear arms control? Not good would be the short answer. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen the, the US-Russia um, relationship going from bad to worse, really. Uh, and that, by the way, predates uh, 2014 when, when Russia annexed uh, Crimea. Um, you know, across the board, not just uh, in, in nuclear issues, uh, the relationship again has, has, has really very seriously deteriorated. And as you rightly said, New START is basically the only arms control, US Russia arms control treaty that remains in place. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it was renewed. Uh, and now we have five years of, of um, you know, that treaty still being alive. But given the fact that uh, the um, strategic stability dialogue is in jeopardy, they, you know, people, Russians and Americans are not meeting anymore. Um, it's unlikely to be renewed. Uh, and uh, in addition to this, I don't think we have any guarantees that the inspections that are part of New START will continue. In fact, I heard some people say that there were already, you know, some signals that that might actually stop. So even though the treaty might, might remain in place until 2026, it might be, you know, brain dead, if you, if you will. It might actually not be active. So... Uh, the reality is we are really even uh, certainly politically, but also uh, from an arms control standpoint, not having a relationship with Russia anymore. And so we are uh, in a very, very bad place. Um, now, I want to 
um, I guess, stress that uh, there are still a number of uh, channels, um, essentially crisis management channels that exist between the United States and Russia that can be used, um, you know, should a very serious crisis uh, happen so that there can be communication or channels of communication. Uh, but as far as arms control is, is concerned, so limits or reductions of specific weapons, that's, that's not going to happen. And um, so the future really, the, the way the future looks like for, the, for that relationship is no more limits or reductions or codes um, for, to, to limit weapon developments. So this is where we are. And um, you, you mentioned China uh, in, the, in that context as well. Um, I, um, I don't see any avenue for uh, the US-China strategic relationship to be used as a leverage to bring China into the arms control fold. And as, as you know, this was one of the um, discussion, discussion point at least uh, from the previous US administration. And you know, the, the administration talked about trilateral arms control and then said that we could have two bilateral avenue one on US Russia, one on US China that would eventually merge into a trilateral um, you know, arms control relationship, that, that is not happening. And it's not happening because of the very bad state of US Russia relations on the one end. And on the, uh, you know, the other end of the spectrum, uh, China has made it very, very clear that it is not interested in, in arms control. And, um, and so, you know, where we are is, you know, maybe the very likely death of arms control. Now it can probably be revived at some point, but right now, today, if you're looking uh, um, not too far over the horizon, arms control could very well die. And it, it, it can be also seen as a kind of a reminiscent from uh, the Cold War. And given the new kind of uh, systemic uh, rivalry emerging between United uh, States and China, one possible avenue for uh, this uh, bilateral uh, confrontation could be um, actually could take uh, place in the area of uh, nuclear armament. So do you anticipate this kind of um, uh, Cold War 2.0 confrontation in the field, specifically in the field of uh, nuclear weapons where uh, China would seek to catch up uh, uh, with uh, uh, technological breakthroughs and also uh, to uh, well continue with uh, nuclear armament. But then again, of course, what you've outlined, uh, you know, these two difficult uh, relationships uh, the United States is currently faced with uh, and confronted with uh, on the one side with the with Russia, but also on the other side with China in uh, the field of um, uh, nuclear weapons, where this would also result in a kind of a very complicated strategic triangle where Russia and China would be uh, actually inclined to even cooperate first and foremost with each other, but then also with third parties. And here I think, of course, of uh, North Korea, uh, but also Iran, where they've been pushing for the GCPOA. But on the very same time, if you look at what Iran has been doing in the meantime, after the U.S. withdrew from the GCPOA, and right now we are still, you know, awaiting 
the conclusion of this uh, Iran deal 2.0. Uh, obviously, Iran has been preparing also for uh, nuclear, you know, for <laughs> further nuclearization uh, and um, the, the risk of uh, getting nuclear weapons is actually has become higher. So would you, how do you see this, uh, this uh, kind of relationships evolving in this transitionary period of uh, international relations? Sure. Um, let me address, I guess, the first part of your question about uh, China. Um, and then I'll get to the multilateral piece. Um, on China specifically, so China has been modernizing its uh, nuclear arsenal for years. Um, this is in many ways not a new uh, phenomenon, but in very recent years, it's been um, basically, it's, it's, it's been conducting a, a buildup, a crash nuclear buildup. And last year, if you recall, a number of independent organizations, um, you know, through satellite imaging, uh, managed to show that China was actually developing uh, its arsenal a lot faster and you know was going through a much much bigger buildup than than what was originally uh, anticipated, and so and so again we've known that China has been modernizing for years, but not that it it was modernizing so much in so little time, um, uh, you know, over the past the past few years. Um, so the 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 Chinese arsenal has is going is is becoming a lot bigger. In addition to this. China has been improving as well, perfecting its arsenal from a qualitative standpoint. So it's been developing new platforms, um, making its missiles a lot more, um, you know, road mobile missiles, uh, developing subs, uh, improving its command and control systems. So what we are seeing right now is a China that is um, increasingly becoming a, a a very capable nuclear state, not only from a quantitative standpoint, but also from a qualitative standpoint. And this is actually something that's very new because 10 or 20 years ago, we used to regard, at least we in, in, in the United States, used to regard China as a, you know, as, a, as a nuclear problem, but as a future nuclear problem. And where we are today is uh, at a point where China is a very present problem and a problem that will only get bigger um, for the United States. Um, so that's, that's the China problem. Now, as, as we've just discussed, the United States also has a Russia problem. So for the first time uh, in, uh, I would argue it's in, 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 um, in nuclear history, the United States is facing two very capable nuclear armed states that are not friendly. Now, I don't think that despite the fact that Russia and China have been increasing their cooperation essentially since the end of the Cold War, and it's never really stopped. In fact, I would argue it's increased in recent years. Uh, I don't think that they are at a, at a point where they are prepared to cooperate at the nuclear level. Uh, having said that, the, the, the fact is the United States now faces two nuclear armed states, even though they're not cooperating, the United States has to factor that in, that it has two very capable states in different regions that are considered absolutely critical to the United States. 
And so this is a new problem that frankly, we haven't actually uh, begun to um, appreciate. Uh, we haven't internalized uh, how to address it. And uh, I would guess that um, the upcoming US nuclear posture review, which uh, I think will be released within the next few weeks, will address that problem. We'll look at you know, what it means specifically for the United States. Uh, because again, this is very new. Um, as for uh, North Korea and Iran, which you also mentioned, I think I mean, those are clearly uh, problems, but they will be considered, or they are considered as secondary problems from a US standpoint. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are not important, but I think um, Washington will look at, at addressing first the, the, the Russia and China problem in the, in the nuclear sphere just because they are much bigger and much more consequential uh, problems than, than the other two. I would like to uh, ask an additional question just to, uh, just to uh, unpack it a little bit. Do you foresee a possibility for a kind of uh, threat multiplier that means a coordinated, uh, coordinated uh, effort or coordinated actions between China and to Russia in this particular field, uh, given the fact that they know that this would create a really serious um, uh, problem for the United States to tackle. Uh, that means, of course, uh, because China is not included uh, in uh, newly emerging uh, arm, or at least right now, uh, there is no way how China can be included uh, in, in, into a new kind of uh, nuclear arms control regime. At the very same time, uh, the nuclear arms control regimes uh, from the Cold War are more or less dying off. And even the one final pillar is not that has been of course prolonged um, is going to expire at some point of time. I do not see how the relations between the United States and Russia will be actually, you know, better off uh, in five years from now to, uh, you know, to, to have enough incentives for both to negotiate. So given also the deterioration of the nuclear relations between Moscow and Washington, uh, isn't it a kind of a very dangerous um, terrain for, uh, for, for the United States to operate um, where and where do you see a potential uh, added value uh, coming from uh, allies in that uh, you know in that uh, specific uh, context? Sure. So first of all, um, no. At this point, I do not see the potential for Russia-China nuclear cooperation. I don't think that they are there. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, not not at all. I, I would even argue that in many ways. Um, they, they uh, worry about each other uh, in that space. Now, um, that said, I, I will say that I don't, um, I don't think it's impossible that should there be a very serious war like we have right now, but you know, it's, it's, it's possible to, to imagine that if we have a problem in Europe, then it creates a window of opportunity in Asia. In other words, I don't, I don't think it's impossible to imagine China taking advantage of the problem we have in Europe to make moves in Asia. Um, now, and I know what everybody is thinking, it's, you know, you know, 
thinking of the Taiwan question, but I think there's there's other scenarios that can be that can be imagined as well. Uh, so this is, I guess, how we describe this problem. Um, I, I also think that it has posture problem from a U.S. standpoint, uh, and 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 you know it it requires a very serious um, uh, reflection on how on 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 the implications for U.S. forces, U.S. nuclear forces, and and conventional forces as well, because again it's facing two major nuclear armed uh, states, and one of the ways uh, the United States can address that is by basically relying a lot more on, on its allies. This was already something that the United States was pushing for, basically encouraging um, Asian and European allies to take on a much greater share of the deterrence and defense burden. And the reality is, given what's going on, this is even more important and more urgent. And um, specifically when it comes to Europe, I think um, that um, the priority for the United States is to have European allies to take on an even greater share of that burden because the United States still worries about, about Europe, will still need to have a role in ensuring uh, you know, the continuity of a, of a European security order that benefits uh, itself and its allies. But the priority needs to go to Asia. And therefore, the United States will need to be a lot more involved in Asia. It will still require its Asian allies to take on a greater share of that burden as well. The, 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 the you know, burden sharing will need to increase as well in Asia. But it's especially important for, from a US standpoint, to have European allies to, to be a lot more active, um, given the fact that the pacing threat, quote unquote, again, is China and is not going, to, that's not going to change from a US standpoint. And so moving forward, I think this is, this is one way, one way to look at it. The other thing I'll say as well is, um, you know, deterrence can be done in, in many different ways. And I know we're talking about nuclear issues here, but I would argue that um, allies can, uh, by beefing up conventional deterrence, uh, allies in Europe and allies in, in Asia uh, would um, basically help uh, strengthen the US and their own posture um, significantly. And so it's not just, uh, we don't need to just change or adapt US nuclear posture. I think this, a lot of it is about beefing up conventional, uh, the conventional deterrence uh, piece of the, of the equation. Well, there is definitely a watershed moment uh, on the old continent when it comes to um, um, to the attitude towards defense spending uh, following the launch of uh, full-scale war uh, by Russia. Uh, and now we are observing a kind of increasing readiness um, in uh, various uh, European capitals to spend more in the defense, you know, in the field of defense, which hasn't been you know anticipated uh, before that i mean this was uh, obviously a, a huge problem uh, for the european uh, partners um uh, however uh, also when it comes to the attitude uh, towards uh, nuclear weapons and you know hosting 
weapons of mass destruction uh, here on the old continent, uh, there will be also, I think, uh, the need for um, a kind of a shift in the in the strategic thinking. And given what you said about uh, the shifting focus um, by the US on the Indo-Pacific, um, do you uh, do you foresee actually an increased role um, on the side of the European partners when it comes to uh, nuclear weapons? Um, and uh, do you foresee also a kind of shift in their the way they they actually uh, think about it? Because obviously, um, different member states of the European Union have a very different attitude about nukes. And this has been uh, really a serious issue in the political debates of many of the capitals. Also, 98% reduction uh, to uh, today's stockpile of uh, nuclear weapons following, you know, the end of the Cold War uh, is a serious, uh, you know, put them in, 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 a, in a serious um, uh, situation now that they are facing a much more assertive uh, Russia, which would even uh, be inclined uh, to use tactical nuclear weapons uh, if it feels threatened and if it, uh, you know, seeks to uh, succeed in uh, this war. So, what is your take uh, about the European, about the European powers and their attitude towards uh, nuclear weapons? Uh, also, obviously. <laughs> Right now, they are a kind of a missing um, geopolitical puzzle piece in this um, in this nuclear relations between U.S., China, and Russia. Sure, um, I you know ten years ago and maybe 10, 12 years ago, the as you know the discussion about nuclear weapons in Europe was all about consolidation uh, of of U.S. tactical nuclear weapons, whether or not to remove them, how to do it. That's not the debate anymore. So I don't see that um, given, you know, given what's going on with Russia and certainly in the, in the context of the Ukraine conflict. So I don't, I don't think that, I think that debate is dead right now. It's not gonna, it's not going to change. Um, I do not see a need to increase nuclear deterrence in, in Europe, in, in, and by that, I mean, I don't think that the United States needs to de deploy additional nuclear weapons in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that this is, this is, uh, this should be the priority. I think there's a, there's a conventional uh, response that needs to, to happen more so than a nuclear response. There's a lot of things that um, the United States can do and certainly um, that, that US allies can do. And I think this would be a lot more a lot more efficient. For that matter, this is the same, the same, uh, the same priority in in uh, Asia as well. Um, what what you see in Asia is um, allies increasingly interested in discussing nuclear issues and extended nuclear deterrence with the United States because they feel that they need to be involved in those discussions, involved in planning, maybe even to some extent in operation. And there's a very active debate uh, in South Korea about whether or not Seoul should develop its own nuclear weapons. Um, but I, you know, from my perspective, this this is not really uh, this would be you know more damaging than than um, than 
opting for other options. Um, so, you know, beefing up extended nuclear deterrence is certainly something that, that can happen and that, that I would argue should happen. In fact, I, I argued, uh, I've argued for quite a long time that this is the next strengthening agenda. This is, you know, we, we've strengthened extended deterrence by, um, you know, basically asking allies to do more at the sub-conventional level, at the conventional level as well. And now we're at a point where we need um, to actually do more in, in sharing the way we think about nuclear weapons uh, from, from a deterrence perspective. Uh, and so we, we should do all this, but when it comes to the development of actual capabilities uh, to respond to what's going on, whether you're in Europe or in Asia, I think the priority should be given to, to conventional deterrence. And I, as I said, there's a lot that can be done in that space. Um, and you know, I, I'll add as well that um, if, you, if you follow the US national security debate right now, the key term is integrated deterrence. Uh, which is, you know, from my perspective, another way of saying deterrence. Um, but the reality is that from a U.S. perspective, it wants deeper integration uh, between itself and its allies when it comes to deterrence issues. And so what it means is that, again, it's the whole burden-sharing arrangement. We need allies to do more, to be better integrated with us, because the, the less daylight you, you show to your adversary, the, the more likely you are to have a strong deterrent effect. And so that's the way to think about deterrence, integrated deterrence, if you want to use the buzzword. But you know, moving forward, this is, this is the goal. And so, yes, it has a nuclear component, um, but uh, it's, it's really going to happen at the conventional level. Mm -hmm. If I think uh, in terms of uh, strategic triangles, um, I would point to two problematic uh, triangles. Problematic, of course, from the perspective of the U.S. Um, and the U.S. Uh, interests. Uh, the one being obviously the triangle between China, India, and Pakistan, where nuclear weapons are also involved. Uh, in uh, South Asia, and the other one uh, being uh, the triangle China, uh, North Korea, uh, Russia, when it comes to also uh, the involvement of nuclear weapons, how is the United States, from your perspective, of course, uh, actually uh, dealing with these two, uh, you know, very different, of course, strategic uh, triangles, but obviously on the one side, China and uh, Russia are supporting uh, for different, of course, uh, for different reasons, uh, supporting nuclear, uh, the, the nuclearization um, of uh, North Korea, but also, uh, of course, are um, basically building a counterweight to US efforts to deal with uh, the North Korean problem. On the other side, of course, the South Asian strategic triangle, triangle not a new one, and yet, of course, given the uh, new great power dynamics and uh, shifting global power competition towards the Indo-Pacific region, do you foresee this as being the most uh, significant strategic triangle also for U.S. Uh, interests uh, now that the U.S. Um, is preparing for uh, systemic rivalry with uh, China? 
and uh, is uh, also looking for uh, credible partners and allies in the in the Pacific region. Uh, this kind of um, you know shifting actually strategic triangle in the South Asian uh, part um, is uh, obviously also creating problems uh, for Washington. What is your uh, what is your anticipation and also assessment of the uh, situation? Sure. Um, so. Uh, we'll start by saying that um, the United States um, history with nuclear weapons began bilaterally. Um, as you know, in the Cold War, the United States had basically one nuclear problem to solve. Uh, not quite right. China emerged, but it was, it, it, it was you know, small. It was essentially U.S.-Soviet. So in our thinking, it's been bilateral, it's been a bilateral problem to solve. When China emerged uh, and it, China de detonated its first nuclear device in 1964, it immediately had several nuclear problems to solve. So it had uh, certainly the United States, uh, the Soviet Union at the time as well. Uh, and, and uh, you know, quickly, North Korea became a problem. So from a Chinese perspective, uh, and, and um, of course, I'm sorry, um, you know, um, India was also a, a concern. So from a Chinese perspective, uh, the multipolarity, the nuclear multipolarity has been a reality essentially since the beginning. That's not been the, the way we've, we've conceptualized um, nuclear problems in 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 the West, and, and certainly not in uh, in um, in the United States. And so we haven't actually really thought about how to deal with multiple nuclear problems. We are now, but it's um, it's still something that we haven't really conceptualized. Um, so you mentioned South Asia. Uh, I mean, the the the, the obvious, um, you know, what what what. I guess you could argue is that Pakistan developing nuclear weapons will generate generates a response from India. They feed each other in a competition that also impacts China and China being linked to uh, um, you know the US Russia relationship also feeds that triangle. And so you have basically a systemic arms race going on. I think there's some truth to this. I also think that at the moment, um, we don't really see a very active nuclear race operating between China and India. There is an element of response between the two, but it's not really active. And so the idea of a nuclear cascade, if you want to use that terminology, is not really, is not really active. So there are limits to how much you can link all those triangles. I think they are, they are, um, they are real. I mean, there's certainly a triangle between, um, you know, Pakistan, India, and to some extent China, but it's not it's not a perfect uh, sort of cycle of of, of proliferation that feed each, feeds um, that 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 you know is 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 um, self feeding and and sort of you know feeds uh, in turn other triangles such as the U.S. Russia China triangles. Um, but having said that, we are now in a situation in which we have a, a, a nuclear 
multipolar world that we did not have before. And so the question is, um, you know, whether we can deal with that problem by going bilateral, you know, engage China bilaterally, engage Russia bilaterally, or if you need to bring every, everyone together to resolve that problem. I don't think that, uh, first of all, I don't think you need willing partners uh, if, if, if you want to engage everyone to try and solve those problems. And second of all, um, I mean, it's, it's, you have some discussion that is taking place at the P5 level. So between the United States, Russia, China, France, and the UK, but these discussions have been very limited and have not involved uh, you know, arms control, at least the way, the way we, we think of it. And so we are at a point where we are not in a risk reduction uh, mindset. And, and um, we are basically not controlling that, uh, that problem. And we've just you know, earlier talked about how arms control is, is dying uh, in addition to this. So maybe to wrap it up uh, for our audience, uh, the trend clearly points to uh, actually more nuclear pro proliferation. Uh, I mean, given the fact also that arms control regimes are now, you know, actually become weaker and weaker. And at some point of time, we should also uh, probably expect uh, the old arms control system from the Cold War to actually um, <clears throat> cease to exist. And of course, given the new uh, great power dynamics, uh, there will be increased uh, actually um, tensions uh, between uh, the main protagonists in this uh, great power dynamics uh, that would uh, decrease the incentives for arms control and uh, nuclear non-proliferation. Is it a correct uh, way how to sum it up uh, where we are right now, Adam, you know, in this transitional period? I think, unfortunately, yes, that's, that's correct. You know, the, the key terminology from a U.S. standpoint is to talk about strategic stability or has been to talk about strategic stability, particularly with Russia and China. And um, I think this is way too ambitious to hope that we can get stability. First of all, we don't define, we haven't defined what strategic stability is, but you can get an idea of what it means. We are not in a position to hope for stability with Russia or with, with China. Um, you know, personally, I, I like to talk about stabilization, which is another way of saying that we need to avoid the worst dangers of nuclear competition, which we which really is here to stay. Uh, and so, you know, what it means uh, practically is that we are not going to reach stability anytime soon. We are not going to be able to do arms control. The best we can do stabilizing those relationships would be to go through, um, basically to do uh, crisis management. Now, there are problems with this as well because crisis management um, assumes that you have willing partners to manage crisis. And I'm not you know, confident that we are there as well, but at least this is, this is a more, I think, reasonable goal than, than to try and stabilize relationships um, through, through arms control, which is completely out of reach, unfortunately, right now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there are already questions coming into the chat, but I would like to ask you two more questions on my side. One being, of course, uh, related to the bigger uh, geopolitical picture. What is your anticipation for uh, the development of this great power dynamics? How do you see the international relations uh, uh, following this transitional period? What is your personal, actually, expectation? Uh, are we entering uh, uh, kind of multipolarity? You already pointed to the nuclear multipolarity. Does this reflect also multipolarity at the level of great power dynamics or is it uh, going into the direction of a kind of what I call Pax Americana 2.0, a kind of a sole state actor with global power projection and uh, you know all the rest of uh, the uh, great powers being in a position of uh, of uh, either competing or allying with uh, this uh, sole uh, global power projection uh, actor. Uh, and the second question is, um, uh, sorry, a little bit too direct, but uh, I really do not have uh, an answer to it. So I would like to hear your opinion. Uh, are we going to witness a nuclearization of the Middle East uh, following uh, GCPOA 2.0? Do you anticipate that other actors, I mean, we have Israel with nuclear weapons, um, and would the GCPOA prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons is, of course, the question that many people ask themselves, uh, including myself. And then, of course, as a reaction to it, are we going to witness a situation in which Saudi Arabia would actually be eager to uh, also acquire nuclear weapons? We've heard about certain uh, cooperation between Saudi Arabia and China. So I would really want to hear your opinion on that. So on your second question, I think it's um, not impossible. I think it's probably unlikely, but a lot will depend on what the JCPOA 2.0 will will be like i guess if it's if it's a strong agreement an agreement that is being also of course implemented and respected um then then you know the likelihood of the nuclearization of the middle east is probably um you know low or lower at least but if it's not and uh or if it's not being implemented and, and the nuclear problem continues or even intensifies, then yes, that would be, that would be we could see the, the nuclearization of, of the Middle East. This is not, I don't think this is something that would be immediate uh, or, or automatic, but this is a problem, this is, this is a possibility that we should not ignore. Um, regarding your question about, about multipolarity, so I think we live in an increasingly multipolar nuclear world. Um, I mean, just because you have more states that are nuclear capable. I don't think that we live in, a, in an increasingly multipolar system. We do, to, we, we, we do to some extent, but I think that um, you still have um, the same centers of powers that you had uh, a, a few years ago. So I, I, I think that uh, uh, sure, China is, is gaining a lot of power. It's going to weigh increasingly on, on the world. Uh, and in many ways, if I had to think about what major power relations will be like, I think it's, it's more likely to be a, 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 I guess, conflict of systems more so than, uh, you know, a, a power multipolarity 
um, you know, uh, system. So it's probably more that that's, 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 I think the way I would characterize it because power is still, um, you know, the West remains very powerful uh, and sure others are rising, but the West remains, remains powerful. And, and it's more about how uh, different systems will, will compete against e each other, I think, moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, now, there is also a question regarding India. What should India do in the future from your perspective? I mean, given this uh, increasing uh, role of China, um, and also there is a question about the U.S. attitude towards allies. Should uh, the U.S. be uh, more open for uh, the allies to go nuclear? Is, would that be beneficial for the United States, given that uh, there is already a multi-front scenario for Washington to deal with, not as you outlined, not with one problem, not with one nuclear adversary, but with uh, several uh, simultaneously. So in a sense, would that be beneficial? This is a question from the chat. Okay, so on, on India, I think India will continue to have a very independent foreign policy. Uh, I, I think this is unlikely to change, but I think at the same time, as uh, China is becoming more powerful and maybe more uh, assertive vis-a-vis -vis India, uh, India will naturally uh, lean towards um, a, a, a more uh, forthcoming foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the West. And so we've seen uh, a lot more uh, interest on the Indian side to uh, engage in the Quad. That's one example. Uh, second example, China, uh, India has had its so-called Act East policy, which is about engaging Southeast Asia. We've seen the sale of, um, you know, Brahmos missiles to the Philippines in recent months. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there's a number of things that, that a number of things that um, I guess we could not really anticipate India would do, but did. Uh, I would argue in response to what chi to what um, uh, China has been doing vis-a-vis -vis India, but I still think that despite that, India will um, will maintain a very independent policy, foreign policy. Um, with regard to the allies question, no, I, I don't think that the United States would benefit if, say, Japan, South Korea, or others would develop nuclear weapons. I think there are better ways. Um, to strengthen deterrence. Uh, as I mentioned, I think allies can get involved in beefing up conventional deterrence, and this would be a lot more beneficial from a US standpoint, and frankly, for the allies themselves as well. Despite the fact that, uh, as I mentioned, China is, in, is involved in a crash nuclear buildup. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you think also that international organizations reflect um, uh, on the current realities? Because obviously uh, these international re uh, organizations are also a kind of a institutional reminiscence from the Cold War. And now we are dealing, as you've perfectly outlined with uh, various uh, uh, states with nuclear weapons, uh, different uh, conflictual interests, uh, no regimes, uh, no 
actually no no regimes to include them and to deal with them and so how do you how do you see an out on exit out of this you know situation or what is your what is your also assessment for the future of international regimes uh, regarding nuclear arms control where are we headed to I think we've tried to reform the UN for a long, long time and have not really been successful. So, as you well know, uh, I, you know I, I, I don't see... So, to answer your question, no, I don't think that current international organizations are reflecting the power realities uh, and, and more than just power for that matter. Uh, but I also think that... Uh, they are not necessarily useless for this. I think what we will we'll see is the development of new organizations. And we have been seeing this in the development of the G7, G20, and, and you know, many others as well have um, you know, developed precisely because the institutions in place were not successful. Uh, and so going forward, we're more likely to see this, not necessarily to see um, existing not functioning organizations die, but see new organizations that will gradually take on probably more roles and responsibilities to address some of the issues. And, you know, we, the, the focus of this talk is, is China. I mean, we've seen China develop a number of organizations as well. Uh, now, you know, we, 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 can, we can contest many of them and, and the practices of these organizations, but they are emerging for a reason, uh, because you know again the, the organizations that are in place right now are um, not reflecting where where the, the you know power realities are, and so we we're more likely to see that in the in the coming years. And speaking of organizations, of course, NATO. There was nato still this one uh you know major defense alliance that uh, has the dna the institutional dna to deal with uh you know great power uh, competition uh at the very same time there is still uh this kind of internal debate going on right now as to how to uh shift uh, the debate towards china which would be more in the interest of the united states however the european nato members do not actually do not actually perceive china as a security threat um and then if we add also the nuclear component do you think that we will end up with a scenario in which uh, NATO would actually combine China, Russia as a kind of a threat multiplier so that uh, both, uh, both uh, partners uh, on the one side, the US, but on the other side, US and of course, uh, Pacific allies, but on the other side, the Atlantic, uh, the Euro-Atlantic uh, partners are also satisfied um, that we basically include both uh, components of this, uh, you know, threat multiplier, namely Russia and China, or are we even end up with a situation where China will basically, uh, well, replace Russia as uh, threat number one? And second, um, additional question to it: uh, there have been also speculations about Asian NATO. Do you foresee this kind of? Uh, scenario for uh, Indo-Pacific or Eastern Asian uh, NATO for those partners and allies of the United States that feel also increasingly threatened of, 
course, by China, first and foremost, but also by the nuclear threats emerging out of the great power competition. So on your, on your first question, I think we will see um, NATO uh, and other European um, organizations mention China and take China into account in a way that you know, didn't exist before. But I think especially given what's going on uh, with uh, Ukraine, this is unlikely to be the major focus. Uh, I think the, 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 the primary focus from a defense and deterrence standpoint will, and, and I would argue should remain Russia. Um, and, and from a US standpoint, this is also, um, I think where we want European allies to focus on. Um, so I, that would be my response to your, to your first question. Yes, we will see more, uh, more about China, but, but practically probably not much more. Um, on your second question, I, I, I get this, that question quite a lot about Asian NATO. I don't, I don't think so. Um, and one of the reasons is that um, I think this is using, this is using the wrong concept because uh, NATO is a European, obviously a European uh, organization, and it would be wrong to try and solve Asian problems with European solutions. Uh, the way the alliance system, the US alliance, uh, alliances in Asia were created, do not lend themselves well um, to the creation of, of a NATO-like organization. Now, um, that said, I think there's a lot that can and has been done to strengthen collective defense in Asia, but it's not going to happen through a single organization like NATO. It's going to happen in trilateral formats. So one trilateral mechanism is the US, Japan, Australia mechanism, which has done a lot in the security sphere. Um, we talked about the quad, that's another mechanism um, that, that you know, is also doing um, important work. The, the AUKUS arrangement is another one. So it's going to happen uh, through different types of mechanisms, not one single organization like in, like in Europe. So I know to, to, to answer your question, an Asian NATO is very unlikely. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It just means that Asian, Asia requires solutions that are different from, from Europe. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, fluidity in this uh, uh, ad hoc emerging uh, geopolitical uh, security, uh, also oriented uh, formations and alliances and uh, also uh, ad hoc consternations between states, uh, obviously on both sides, uh, quite of an interesting, uh, quite of an interesting time uh, for uh, the experts of international relations and uh, quite a frustrating time for the experts on nuclear relations. So for those of you who would like to dive into the US-China nuclear relations, uh, feel free to uh, actually buy the book uh, on US-China nuclear relations, The Impact of Strategic Triangles, which was published in May 2021. And also, dear David, thank you for um, for uh, your insights uh, and analysis on 
the current nuclear relations and also great power dynamics uh, in uh, global affairs. Uh, thank you also to those of you who joined us and asked questions during the live stream and also uh, thank you to Bharatwat uh, for facilitating this uh, talk. Um, so this was all from us for today. Thank you so much, Valina. Thank, thank you, everyone.